Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode, the last in the current series, was recorded at the Online Educa Conference in Berlin and focuses on generative AI. Since the release of ChatGPT in November 2022, the learning world has been mesmerised by the potential benefits and dangers of this new form of AI. Unlike other forms, it can be accessed by non-technical people in natural language conversations. Donald explores its roots in neurobiological research, as well as the learning theory underpinning his belief that it is potentially the most powerful technology invented so far for learning. Welcome everybody to this live episode of Great Minds on Learning. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark on the spotlight stage at the Online Educa Berlin conference in, in Berlin. And I've been asked to tell you people in the hall that we are recording this session for transmission. So if you ask a question, your voice will be recorded. So um, don't swear, please, because that's Donald's job. <laughs> but please don't let that stop you asking questions at all or anything. So first of all, can we get a show of hands? Who has listened to Great Minds on Learning regularly or ever? Well, that's good. It's nice to have so many followers here, um, but also plenty of fresh meat. Uh, for those of you familiar with the show, you'll notice this session will be slightly different from the usual format in a couple of ways. We typically cover three to six great minds in each episode. In this one, we're covering 22. Secondly, I usually give you a bit of a biog for each theorist, but clearly that's not practical with, the, with that many, and we have less than an hour, so we'd stick to time. And Donald has a pressing engagement straight afterwards. Um, so, also, we've already done that for a lot of the people in these previous episodes anyway, like, you know, Socrates. Everyone knows who he is. <laughs> so we're going to be a bit selective this time with, with the biographical information. So our theme is generative AI and the theory that underpins it. ChatGPT burst onto our screens uh, around a year ago and, was, and has astonished mesmerized, frightened, and enthused the multitudes. But what is it, and where does it come from? And what's it mean for learning? My co-host Donald is better placed probably than anybody on the planet to answer these questions. Not only is he a formidable advocate for AI, and for generative AI in particular, he's also a practitioner. He has an AI company, and is also perhaps the leading expert on the history of learning theory, having read pretty much everything there is to read on the subject. So that's enough about us. We've heard quite a lot about us. Um, Donald now is going to give you a very brief introduction, covering firstly the brain folk, uh, people who do a lot of work on neuroscience, neurobiology, machine learning and AI, and then the theorists more directly con connected to human learning. So it's drawing threads together um, to show us where generative AI really came from. So Donald, tell us how these two threads come together, brain science and learning theory, to propel us towards a learning-friendly technology that has dialogue and conversation at its heart. Yeah, so when you actually try and build this stuff, it's quite, quite hard. But after a few years, we really, myself and Callum, we started really doing technical, gener using these large language models in one form or another way back, for, well, really 2014, 15. But 
it suddenly struck me that there was a question to be asked here, which was, what, is the what do learning theorists or learning theory, what does it say about the use of these generative models, which are by and large dialogue-type models? Uh, is that good for learning or not? That's an interesting question. And funnily enough, even though I was obsessed by the subject, I hadn't really asked myself that question. But there's an interesting starting point here, which is a whole load of theorists starting really about 1949 with a guy called Donald, same name as me, Donald Hebbs. And you may have heard of Hebbian learning. And he was a school teacher, interestingly, a headmaster in a school in Montreal. And uh, he was also a neuroscientist. He wrote a very interesting book on the subject called Neuropsychological, it was, it was in the title. 1949. And the, the, to cut to the quick, because we don't have a huge amount of time here, uh, he basically looked at neurons in the brain and understood that neurons that uh, fire together wire together. That's the summary of his theory, really. And what he meant was if I have neuron A and neuron B, it sparks, it's actually a chemical reaction as well, with the other neuron, both neurons gain in terms of the new learning that is stored within the brain. So this was a sort of foundational idea here that was taken up by others about the same time in the 1940s. So we have two other key figures here, which are McCulloch and Pitts. McCulloch is a neuroscientist and really good mathematician. Pitt was a super mathematician. He was actually homeless, believe it or not, when McCulloch found him and he took him into his home. And what they did was they took the Hebbian idea of these neurons and they said, let's study a neuron and turn it into maths. In other words, when a neuron actually reaches a threshold and fires another neuron, let's imagine in mathematics that the brain learns in the following way. It actually has logical reasoning. So they took logical propositions like and, or, not. There's another one called X or a bit more complicated, and they built a mathematical model of the neuron. Remember, these are people who are studying the brain and learning. They're learning people. This guy was a headmaster. So he was deeply interested in how technology could be built on top of what we know about the brain and how it learns. So that was a... You have these linear thresholds that poof, suddenly you pop out the top, and that was McCulloch and Pitsy's real breakthrough. Then we have a guy called Rosenblatt, an absolute genius, Frank Rosenblatt, he comes along and builds one. He builds a mechanical model. Remember, this is the time, this is before circuit boards. He builds a mechanical model of, called a perceptron. It was a camera with an, a 2020 array, 400 pixel thing that could look at you and try and see if you were a cat, a dog, or a human being. Okay? And he had these old-fashioned resistors and mechanical motors that would turn the dials and the resistors, so it would eventually go, oh, we'll try and get the gradients right and the 400 pixels square, and it would learn every time it took an act, it, it, it moved forward. It was the first learning machine, really. It was the first AI learning machine trying to get the contrast, are you a human or are you a cat? This was a huge breakthrough and really foundational in the future of artificial intelligence. And then, of course, this led, let's take a big leap here, because we've got people like Turing, the guy with the glasses up there in the middle row uh, uh, is Demis uh, Hassabis. He was the founder of DeepMind, which is the beating heart of Google now, a genius. He worked in the games industry, he was a chess prodigy. He went into academia, interestingly, and did a couple of papers on how the mind learns using reinforcement learning, came out, founded DeepMind, a few years later, sells it for 700 million to Google. 
and he is key to the future of generative AI, reinforcement learning in particular. A really important feature. Remember, he's a learning guy who went to study neuroscience and how the brain learns. And then we have the three at the bottom who are the three, the Nobel Prize winners really in generative AI. And uh, the middle one is Jeffrey Hinton. Jeffrey really invented a thing called back, back, prob back propagation. Okay, so that's, it's really hard to explain back propagation. But if you imagine coming down a mountain and you just step forward with your feet, and if you find the steepest bit, then that's the direction you should go in. Or if you're going up a mountain, you might step forward and find the, the steepest to go up. And you'll eventually, through error, by coming back down around the mountain and error spotting, you sort of gain a lot of learning on how to get down the mountain. That's sort of back propagation. It's not quite like that, but it's a good metaphor. He, he discovers that in multi-layered neural networks. Huge breakthrough. All of this stuff comes from, uh, from Je uh, Jeffrey and his, his co-founder, Rumelhart. And then we go on to Jan LeCun who's the head of AI at Facebook, an absolute genius, my favorite of these three, because he has no truck with all this sort of doomster ethical stuff. He's saying, let's, we're learning people, we work in healthcare, let's get the benefits on the, uh, the show on the road here. So it's a useful introduction because actually all of this AI stuff, generative AI stuff, actually came from learning people who studied the brain. So it's a good foundation for this yeah. debate, I think. So Jeffrey Hinton has had something to do with all that doomsaying, hasn't he? He, 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 he kind of is one of the people who's very worried about AI. Yeah. Interestingly enough. Yes, yeah. He's backtracked a bit. He signed the letter originally and then sort of withdrew from it again. Yes. As you realised it was a bit, uh, a bit much. Yeah, yeah. It's only a chatbot. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a really good summary, Donald. Uh, we've done it very quickly, and I'm kind of itching to go into some of these people, although we can't, like Walter Pitts, just really interesting character, mentored by Bertrand Russell, wouldn't accept a job in the university, worked there as a cleaner instead. But we don't have time for all that stuff. And it's frivolous anyway, it's just my, my thing. So who are the learning people involved in, in this? Okay, well, the brain uh, so yep. top right to bottom left, top left is a guy called Geary, who is an evolutionary learning guy, he wrote a really important book saying, listen, basically the brain's an evolved organ. If we teachers don't understand that, we don't know how people learn. We have the famous Socrates, the whole dialogue thing, like ChatGPT, very relevant. We have a guy called Abachtin, who was, a, who was around in the early part of the centuries. Uh, and then, then we have Gordon Pask, a dandy, weird English guy who built a thing called conversational theory. And then we have Wittgenstein, sorry, was, uh, and also uh, the famous Lev Vygotsky, who is really relevant here. We'll come to that one. There's a guy called Toffler, I'll explain in a minute. Then the two guys in the middle at the bottom are Nass and Reeves, who gave us 35 studies showing exactly why ChatGPT works. We'll come to that in a minute. And the last one is the famous Seymour Papert, who actually gave us the real reason as to why 100 million people use this for learning, and 1 billion people use it every month. And Alex, we'll now, we can now unpack them. That's who yep. they are. So the top line of those are people concerned with dialogue and conversation. We'll get into a bit more um, yeah, detail on that. Yeah. Starting with David Geary, 1957. Uh, still alive. We covered him in episode 15 of Great Minds about evolutionists. He's a cognitive development and evolutionary psychologist born on Rhode Island, currently a curator's professor 
and Thomas Jefferson Fellow in the Department of Psychological Science and Interdisciplinary Neuroscience Program at the University of Missouri. Then, of course, we have uh, Socrates, um, who we covered in episode 12, a Greek philosopher from Athens who's credited as the founder of Western philosophy and among the first moral philosophies, philosophers, authored no text, famous for being unbelievably ugly. Um, Mikhail Bakhtin, who's new to the podcast, we haven't covered him yet, a Russian philosophy, uh, philosopher, literary critic and scholar who worked on literary theory, ethics, and the philosophy of language. His writings on a variety of subjects inspired scholars working in a number of different traditions, Marxism, semiotics, structuralism, religious criticism, and in disciplines as diverse as literary criticism, history, philosophy, sociology, anthropology, and psychology. And the last of the uh, top line is, if I got the right people up there, yep. is Gordon Pask. Um, again, new to the podcast. Uh, fantastic photographs of this guy. Uh, the background in the theater. Was a British cybernetician, inventor, and polymath who made during his lifetime multiple contributions to cybernetics, educational psychology, educational technology, epistemology, chemical computing, architecture, and the performing arts, which is how he gets the look, I suppose. Um, and I, I feel a bit of fellow feeling there. Absolutely fascinating figure. You've dangled before us, Donald, but with not enough time to explore his eccentricities. But let's get into Geary now. Yeah, well, I think, you know, David Geary is really interesting. It really changed my mind when I read his book on the origin of the mind because he brings an evolutionary perspective to learning. I think this is really incredibly useful for people who teach or learn. So Geary basically says, we have this evolved organ and it evolved to have some primary learning skills that we don't really have to learn. Your first language, your recognition of faces. There are all sorts of things we are born to learn without effort. Uh, this is really interesting, uh, but some of those things are not necessarily good. We're also born with a, 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 what he called a folk or naive physics, a folk psychology and folk biology. So we sort of believe that the sun goes around the earth. We believe all sorts of weird things in physics, like an arrow has momentum as it shoots through the air, which of course uh, Newton disproved. But if you understand what these primary schools are, he then calls secondary learning is mathematics, language, all that stuff we learn in school. But what he says is really interesting. He says the way to teach the secondary stuff really effectively is by reference to the primary learning capabilities of the brain. And what's interesting in terms of chat GPT is, you know, that sort of hokey e-learning stuff, you know, text, graphic, multiple choice question, cartoon, speech bubble stuff, that flat stuff. We did not evolve to do that, <laughs> really, let me tell you, which is why people are bored shitless when they watch the stuff. But we did evolve to speak and listen. The, the, we don't actually have to learn how to speak or listen. It sort of happens naturally to us. Now, that's interesting because for the first time, really, in the history of learning technology, these things, like we chat GPT for 20 bucks a month, or uh, you can speak it to it and it will speak back. It really works on your mobile. Try it. It's amazing. It's a completely different experience because that's what teachers do in classrooms. They don't show bits of paper to kids. They say, if you're teaching maths, they ask them a question, they get an answer back, you do the feedback and diagnosis. So for the first time, online learning, hey presto, a speech, an evolved feature of the brain. That's why Geary is so important. It's also important in terms of motivation. If you sat in a classroom and just showed PowerPoint with no audio, how long would that last? 
It would be bizarre because we didn't evolve to sit in conferences for three days and listen to this stuff. <laughs> you're at, what, we're at the end of the first day, you're probably feeling pains in your chest with boredom already, you know. Uh, this is not an evolved way to learn anything. So that was Geary. Right. How about this fellow then? Socrates. Oh, so philosophy is my game, that's what I have my degree in, postgraduate work, and, and at Socrates I'm sort of, you know, ambivalent about a little bit. So this is a guy, I don't know if you've ever seen that Raphael fresco in uh, the Vatican, where you've got Plato and Aristotle, it's called the School of Athens. Plato and Aristotle are coming down the middle, and they're very big and bold, that's the feature. Socrates is tucked away off to the left in a green robe, talking to young people, because he wasn't interested in didactic science or teaching, he was interested in dialogue. Yeah. But there's a downside to this as well, because he was also incredibly cruel. If you read... If you read the Socratic dialogues, he's almost intellectually bullying the people. Yes. He would have, he would have been a terrible teacher, actually. Yes. He would also have been absolutely cancelled for his attitudes towards pederasty, but that's another question entirely. Yeah. He would never have been allowed to teach in the modern age. Several uh, reasons not to have him to your dinner party. Exactly. But he did get killed. He's perhaps the only teacher who, who did actually get executed by the state because he was such a good teacher. That's interesting. But what we can learn from... Socrates is the different species of questions and dialogue that he surfaced or used in critical thinking. And myself and Callum have been taking Socratic methods that are so you can extract the different question types and building them into AI sort of coaches and chatbots. So I think he's an interesting figure because we have a lot to learn from just the way he did it. It's a very practical thing. So that's Socrates. I think he was, he's particularly useful when you're looking at generative AI and dialogue. Yeah. And we have come across him a, a, a couple of times, haven't we? Yeah, we've Seriously. discussed him in many, uh, many of our, uh, our podcasts in the past, yeah. Yeah. So how about this next guy, Mikhail Bakhtin? It's a new one on me. Yeah, well, Mikhail Bakhtin... His, when you read his stuff... So he, this is a guy who was brought up in Soviet Russia in the 1930s... Uh, and his writing was really around a, a, a critique of literature. He was an expert in Dostoevsky and so on. Yeah. But the second big thing he introduced was a learning theory around dialogue. He thought learning was essentially a process of what he called dialog dialogistics. But dialogue was the core learning theory for him. And he thought there were two forms of dialogue. There was a sort of authoritarian dialogue where that may be the religion you're brought in. If you're brought up in a Catholic household or Jewish household, you're quite likely to have the beliefs of your parents. So there's a, a sort of authoritarian dialogue that you learn in life and learn in schools. So it can be quite, you know, authoritarian, the school and university experience even. You know, even the canon or science would be regarded as the authoritative dialogue. But there's a second, more important one, which is what he calls internally persuasive dialogue. This is a really sophisticated theory. It's not just dialogue me speaking to you, John, as we are here. Yeah. It's also a dialogue internally, internally with yourself or a dialogue with a novel as you read it. Right. So this is by no means a very simple speech dialogue thing. So it's really important to remember that when we come to Vygotsky, especially that we have an internal phonological loop. Right. So if I asked you all in this audience right now to say, oh, it's really nice here being in Berlin in your mind in a Scottish accent. Do that right now. It's really nice being here in Berlin. Do that in a Scottish voice. You can do it. 
It's the weirdest thing. You have an internal, internal voice. You can change accents. You can do all sorts of it's, it's, You don't know it, but you're using it all the time. Yeah. And we're often sitting alone speaking to ourselves. Yeah. I often speak in your voice. I just... <laughs> Okai, the new on the... <laughs> so, I, I think he's a, he has another concept which I quite like, which he called carnival, different types of dialogue. And he has one which he wrote a lot about called carnivalesque dialogue, which is... You know, I was out for a meal last night with some people we knew from England and blah, blah, blah. And it was jokey and fun, you know, because we knew each other. He thought that was an essential aspect of human interaction and dialogue, which I think is often missing in teaching, but we've done a lot of that in the podcast. I've known John for 30 years. We live in Brighton. We used to work together. But we, I think we can afford to say what we want. Yes. I don't care. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. You more than me, but... <laughs> yeah. No, certainly, and um, I think it's often that we, you know, the, the the fun aspect of learning is too often kind of missed out, and it, it feels like we're having fun, we're not learning. I don't think that's necessarily the truth. Yeah, it, I mean, he didn't go for belly laugh fun. You know, I, I really hate that idea that you know, I'm a really not a fan of the word engagement in learning, and I often give this example. Give it yesterday. I go to the Edinburgh Festival every year. I watch dozens of stand-up comedians. I've done it all my life. I was massively engaged. I can't remember a single joke, not one. Hmm. And that's because engagement is a terrible proxy for learning, actually. Just, you know, all this thing about make it fun, gamify things, let people chase little rubies around Pac-Man mazes. No, <laughs> no, that's not learning. Yeah. So talking of fun, well, yeah. should we get on to the, the next guy, Gordon Pask? Yeah. I mean, you know, he looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> And he does have this theatre background, which, which is... He did, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh. Well, well, Gordon Pask was called, he was called the dandy of cybernetics, that thing at the top, and he was truly eccentric. He knew Marvin Minsky at MIT. I actually met a friend of mine, Mike Sharples, actually studied under him, and he said, one-to-one, -one, he was brilliant. Teaching, terrible. <laughs> and his books are almost incomprehensible. His book on, uh, his book on uh, dialogue and cognition, and conversation and and cognition is almost impossible to read. But the interesting thing is his absolute focus. He really did believe that learning was conversation, not just dialogue. And it, was, it had a real context to it. And this leads into some other people that we'll speak about in a moment, like Wittgenstein and so on. But interestingly, he also, like Bakhtin, thought that dialogue was also internal dialogue, dialogue with the novel, also dialogue with the external world. He widened it out, you know? Uh, you know, so that when you're even walking through the conference here, you're sort of thinking about it and having dialogue with your environment. It was an extremely sophisticated conversational theory that he worked out in detail. When it came to learning, he actually had this rather interesting idea of hierarchies of dialogue. So when you're teaching, forget blooming that stupid little colored pyramid, you know, that, that's, that's, learning is far messier than that. It was a stupid idea, <laughs> dumbass pyramid. Actually, what Gordon was far smarter than that. He realized that actually when you're teaching, you jump up and down these hierarchies or levels of explanation depending on the feedback you get in dialogue with the person you're teaching. And he worked this out in detail, the logic of these hierarchies, and built machines, amazingly, that did it, <laughs> which, uh, which absolutely astounds me today because this is a sort of machine age, half electric, half machine age. They cost an absolute bomb to build. Nevertheless, the Sasaki and Cass machines, nevertheless, I think he laid the foundations for a really solid theory around conversational yeah. 
conversational learning. He has a conversational theory that he's built. Really worth looking at, honestly, if you're interested in why generative AI might work. Mm. So he's the last of those dialogue people, you know. And there's, there's, plenty, there's plenty of evidence here by people who have thought about this deeply that dialogue is a damn good thing in learning. Yes. And all of these people are interesting to our p the point of our topic because... Yeah. Uh, ChatGPT is is a dialogue. It's a chatbot, basically. Yeah. Now that's a bit surprising. Go back a couple of years. You look around at all the things that are going on across the technology landscape. Which was the one you would have thought was going to absolutely explode and sort of change the whole world? Probably not a chatbot at that stage because they seemed a bit kind of clunky. Sure. And then suddenly this comes along. So we've kind of established the importance of, of dialogue as, as part of this. Uh, should we now drill a bit more into the role of language in yeah. learning with our, this is with the our big next, one, I think. next trio? Exactly. Ludwig Wittgenstein, 1889-1951, was an Austrian philosopher who worked primarily in logic, the philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of mind, and the philosophy of language. He was a protégé of Bertrand Russell's, like Pitts, in fact, but much earlier. He taught at the University of Cambridge during his entire pretty eventful life. Uh, so only one book of his philosophy was published in his lifetime, but what a book. It appeared under the Latin title Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus in 1921. Other works appeared posthumously in which he retracted some of his assumptions. So he changed the world and then he changed his position, including the hugely influential philosophical in investigations, which I've actually read a bit of. Amazing. The other person we'll be covering in this section is Lev Vygotsky, very well known to a lot of you, I'm sure. Russian psychologist, born in Belarus, uh, and best known for his theories about learning and development, which emphasized the role of culture and social interaction in shaping human cognition. Vygotsky argued that learning is a social process and that children develop cognitive skills through their interactions with others. So the whole kind of social constructivism thing starts there. He believes that language plays a central role in this process. Donald, what do these two have to tell us about generative AI, starting with Wittgenstein? Well, Wittgenstein was the person I most admire in this group, first of all. He was a genius twice over. He, he writes the Tractatus Philosoph uh, uh, Logical, Logical Philosophicus, and it blows people's mind. He writes it during the First World War. Then he, he throws it in the bin. <laughs> he throws it in the bin, he goes to Cambridge, speaks to Bertrand Russell, and he writes another book called Philosophical Investigations, which are really just notes. But in those notes are real gems with regard to what we might regard as useful for generative AI or large language models. The first concept he comes up with is a thing called family resemblance. So if you take a, a word like, like beer, the, that would be related to bottle, to pub, to drinking, to alcohol. And all of these words are basically in a sort of family relationship, a bit like father, mother, daughter, nieces, uncles, and so on, right? It's a network of meaningful relationships. Yeah. This actually blows away. I think Florida got Wittgenstein, the guy who spoke to Monkey, got all wrong. <laughs> Wittgenstein really thought that large abstract nouns were really misleading. He thought that language was promiscuous. and other words, it kept pushing us into abstractions which weren't real. So we start talking about creativity or critical thinking, but they're not real. 
Actually, we use them, but they're empty coins. He liked to bring things back down and move away from universals. So first of all, he gets family resemblance because that has an uncanny resemblance to the way in which tokens or words are stored in large language models. They actually have weightings between words that describe their relationship, and that's why we can use that data to pull out such wonderful things, that holy shit, you know, this chatbot experience you get. Yeah. Nobody quite knows why it works, but it does. He then goes on to do something really interesting, which is language games. Now, when, when we're talking together here, it's a sort of like a bit weird, isn't it? I'm sitting on the stage here, I'm doing a podcast, we've got an audience, but there's a certain sort of language game we're playing here. Yes. We know it's a podcast, we've done a bit of preparation, all that sort of stuff. Yes. Uh, if I were, today at lunch, I had a deep conversation with three people around the table, that was much, a, a completely different language game. Now, Wittgenstein basically thought that you, to understand language and philosophy, you had to understand language games. And interestingly, these large language models, I don't know if you've ever done this at all, you can change its voice. You can suddenly make it play another language game. You can say, listen, I, I don't know anything about quantum mechanics. I want you to be a tutor, to be quite didactic, and pretend I'm a 15-year-old and give me some, a, a little tutorial on quantum mechanics. And it will do it, because it, it knows that it plays that language game. I think, and there are other theorists who think this is true, that these large language models are showing us that it captures language games, not just language. It reproduces language games. So, be a pirate. I want, a pirate, I want this poem written in the voice of Donald Trump. It will, it will play these language games for you. That's one of the things that astonishes me about large language models, which yeah. is why it's not a stochastic parrot. I hate that sort of reductionist view of this thing. But he then went on to, there are two other things that are really relevant in Wittgenstein. One he called, he said, you have to understand a language game has a context, a formal life, which he thought was the cultural context. So the context is, we're two people from England. Well, I'm from Scotland, but from uh, we're <laughs> Great Britain. <laughs> we're here in Berlin. We've got this form. That's the sort of social and cultural context. There's OEB, right. that sort of whole vibe, right? Now, this is what's missing in large language models is that. And that's why people like Jan LeCun are trying to build world models into the large language models, or, or at least the software environment which they work, so that they're in a sense, aware of their context, and that's when they will become super powerful. That's starting to happen, because these large language models can now see, so you can feed it an image, and it will interpret it as image recognition of the thing you load up from your smartphone. So suddenly, suddenly, generative AI can see the world, and therefore start to interpret it and understand context. Hmm. So Wittgenstein, there's one last thing to finish on Wittgenstein. I really admire him for his view on ethics. Because he said way back, uh, you know, this is decades and decades ago, don't be fooled by abstract nouns in ethics. He thought that most discussion in ethics was just puff. <laughs> he said ethics is fundamentally a, a human feeling of empathy, sympathy. And he thought that all the deontological theories, you know, all these very earnest people who want to ban chat GPT and impose thousand laws and regulations on it are really have no really substantial philosophical or ethical basis for it. I think that's an interesting lesson to learn from Wittgenstein. Yeah. I think it's so interesting, that idea of games, and you think, you know, when you go to see your GP and talk to your GP, you're actually playing a type of game. And when, you, when you've got this um, in your brain, this idea of Wittgenstein's, you, you just see it everywhere. And I think with the internet, it's so interesting. We always complain there's no context in anything. You're talking 
it's so hard to talk to chatbots because they don't understand your context. Correct. And ChatGPT puts context back in sort of in the way of a game. It's like you have to tell it what type of game yeah. we're playing yeah. to have that oh, conversation. Yeah. I, just, I just found that, re that really interesting. So it There's one other thing in Wittgenstein that, to point to people towards names. There's another guy called Wolfram, who's a real AI mathematical genius. Stephen Wolfram, yeah. Stephen Wolfram. Stephen Wolfram thinks there's something else going on here. Really interesting. He th obviously, these large language models can reproduce the syntax of a language. That could be the different syntax, grammatical rules in German as opposed to English. It does it massively successfully. People are not quite, in other words, it just has this model and it works. Wolfram thinks there's another layer, what he calls, and he calls that semantic syntax. Yeah, yeah. He thinks it, has a, it actually, actually creates meaning, which is in line with Vygotsky's view of a language game. I think there's some fascinating things going on with large language models that we're only beginning to discover. And when the next uh, generation comes along, I think there will be, they will be much more powerful, much more human-like very, very quickly indeed because of this. So let's get on to Vygotsky. Sure. Um, who I've already introduced, so go. <laughs> well, Vy Vygotsky is a name that everybody's heard of. I quite often I hear people mention Vygotsky and <laughs> Yeah, oft quoted, never read sort of guy, you know? And the thing I most hear about is the zone of proximal development, which is the most boring, dull, banal bit of theory I've ever heard in learning. The fact that, oh, you shouldn't go too far, but not keep it challenging. Like, my mother knew that. <laughs> I don't need to read Vygotsky to know that. But Vygotsky is a genius because he then, he actually just threw Piaget in the bin. Piaget thought that cognitive development was in very definite stages. He happened to be the worst scientist in the world because he just asked these kids questions until he gave them the answer he wanted. So that was nonsense. Vygotsky comes along, because we discover him afterwards, and says, no, no, it doesn't work like that. Actually, language, language is the key to cognitive development. And actually, he did something quite interesting, which I now believe, I didn't believe it before. So you might think that language is a function of intelligence. That was a common held belief. Actually, he's saying that intelligence is a function of language. And always what differentiates us as a species is that we have a recombinatory language facility that gives us these amazing cognitive abilities. It's language that gives us that, a bit like Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein thought that language was thought. We thought in terms of language, and the limits of language are therefore the limits of thought. Now, Vygotsky does something else, though, because he focuses on learning. That's our game. And he says, well, this language thing's interesting. Actually, when you first learn the language, it goes back to gear. Your first language, you just pick up, you know, almost naturally. But language plays a big role from your parents, your mother, father, your siblings, your social context. But when it comes to learning theory, Vygotsky has some really interesting things to say, and he calls it the knowledgeable other. Those are teachers, but they're not just teachers. He thought it was a mistake to see things learning in terms of teaching. That was, that's almost a banal theory, because we, we learn most of what we learn without being taught. He saw the knowledgeable other as somebody who just knew more than you, and you would learn from them. And that could be anybody. It could be people in your workplace, experts, whatever, your mum, dad, your sister, brother, whatever. But he thought that language was the mediating medium for that. But he didn't, didn't just think that language was mediating. He, he, called, he also called it the knowledgeable other, which you could call a chatbot. It wouldn't have mattered to Vygotsky. If Vygotsky had faced ChatGPT, he would have gone, that's a knowledgeable other, I can learn from it because it's good at language. Mm. 
That's clever. I think it's a Vygotskyan insight that's interesting. And then he used the word tools. It's a bit unclear exactly what he meant by tools. But actually what he was really referring to was that other things like a calculator, a laptop, anything could be a tool in learning. It needn't be a teacher. You can learn from encounters with the real world. And of course, a chatbot is a tool, a piece of technology. I think Vygotsky would have welcomed this technology as a knowledgeable other and a tool for learning because it's language-based. So I found, I, found go, I found going back and reading his two books really, really mind-blowing in the light of ChatGPT. Yeah. You know, I'm going, this guy really was a genius. <laughs> in a way, I had never thought of the first time around. That makes sense. Yeah. Does the tool have to be interactive? I mean, can the book be the knowledgeable other? Yes. Yeah, so works of Wittgenstein, could they be your knowledgeable other? Well, Vygotsky, a bit like the others, thought that this, this notion of, because he was big on the, that internal phonological loop was a big thing for Vygotsky, yeah. the talking to yourself. He has a whole theory about how languages are learned and so on. But So it's entirely congruent with the things that we've been discussing so far. That's absolutely right. You can be taught by a tool or a knowledgeable other as the author of a novel, for example, right. or reading Socrates as written by Plato. Yeah. Yeah, very definitely. Okay. Any more to say about Vygotsky, or should we move on to interface now? Uh, no, I think... Let's move on to the interface thing, yeah. 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 So we, some we, time for we questions, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah. we talked about... Um, Dialogue being important, language being important. We're beginning to tease out a lot about you know, MMLs and that. Now we come to what's the interface that, that, that makes this work. Rudolf Topfer, yep. 1799 to 1846, so very early, kind of an yeah. enlightenment figure. Swiss teacher, author, painter, cartoonist, and caricaturist. We'll see some of those in a minute. He is best known for his illustrated books, which are possibly the earliest European comics. Mm. Um, we always surprise you with what we bring into Great Minds on Learning, I hope. He's known as the father of comic strips and has been credited as the first comics artist in history. Then we have Joseph Wiesenbaum, 1923 to 2008, was a German-American computer scientist and a professor at MIT. That's what I'm saying about him, because we've got a lot to get through. Then we have Blake Lemoyne, or he's American, so I don't know how you pronounce it. If he's French, I'd say it's Lemoyne, but probably Lemoyne. 1981, a professional software engineer and computer scientist born in Louisiana, USA, and he's probably most famous, probably only famous, for being fired by Google after he claimed their language model was sentient. People will remember that from a little while back. Uh, then we have Nasson Reeves, Clifford Nass, 1958 to 2013, and Byron Reeves, no dates for him, but presumably a contemporary. We covered them in episode five. Nass was a professor of communication at Stanford, authority on HCI, which is human-computer interaction. Byron Reeves, still with us, uh, was also a Stanford professor, first degree in graphic design, interestingly. Um, his research includes message processing, social cognition, and social and emotion responses to media. Then we have Papert, Seymour Aubrey Papert, 1928 to 2016, also covered in episode five. Papert was a South African-born American mathematician, computer scientist, and educator. Studied at Johannesburg and Cambridge, Protégé of Piaget, that's difficult to say, spent most of his career at MIT and a pioneer of AI. 
Donald, do you want to talk us through the interface issues, starting with Rudolf Topfer? Yeah, one of the things about these 100 million people who just adopted ChatGPT without any marketing spend, the, you know, the fastest adopted technology in the history of our species, was the absolute banal simplicity of the interface. You know, Google, you know, why do we, why do we spend all that money on UX designers and e-learning when the most successful interface is a little window and light stuck in the middle of Google? You know, I think we've over-engineered all that stuff, Disney-fied it up like crazy, you know, so it's almost unusable. Toffler was interesting because he did the first comic book in Europe, and it's amazing. He had thousands and thousands of little sketches of faces, but you can read almost personality into the tiniest, you know those faces along the bottom? You can almost see them as people, and yet they're just simple, simple lines. Because, and then he's, he was quite interesting, going, why is this so? Why do, why do we see them as people when it's just that simple? And that's because, going back to Geary, we have this evolutionary attraction to the very simple contours of a face, which is an interesting link. Anyway, he was the, he, it was a, somebody in America who's written extensively about this guy saying, this is the key to understanding good interfaces. Just strip them down, go de minimis on them. Okay, then we go on to, if you go on to uh, Joseph Weizenbaum. We had the chatbots way back, so the first major conference in the AI modern era in 1956 in Dartmouth College in the northeast of the US. This guy pops out the conference and writes a chatbot called Eliza. And he didn't actually like Eliza, but his secretary, people had secretaries in those days, actually thought it was real. She was convinced that Eliza was real, and all it did was feedback key words. Mm. But this, you know, Joseph didn't really get it really, because actually he should have been saying, why do people think it's real? because dialogue is essential to intelligence. We're e as soon as we engage in dialogue, then we think it's human. Now, if we go on to chatbots and go into Blake Lemoyne, for instance, this guy is a really smart programmer, senior AI programmer in Google, who is playing around with Google's chatbot. That's about to be released soon, by the way, Gemini. That will blow your mind. He actually thinks it's conscious. He is so convinced by the dialogue. I think he is fooled, he's deluded, <laughs> But this is a smart guy who actually left Google in the end because he really did believe we had cracked consciousness when he started speaking. He was testing his own work. So this was an interesting example of the hypothesis that was put forward by Nice, uh, by Clifford Nass and Reeves, if we yep. go on to them next. Because they wrote a fantastic book called The Media Equation, and I remember buying this, and I used it as the basis for a lot of training within my company when we were building online learning. And they had 35 studies, and they're amazing. And what they did was, they came to one conclusion, which is when we deal with technology, a chatbot, anything, we actually think it's real. We actually, when we look at our laptop and we're doing on social media, even though it's artificially produced, we're easily fooled into thinking it's human. So we kick the tires of our car if it's got a puncture because we think it's got some sort of internal, you know, a objection to us or something, he doesn't like us or something. You know, we, we, we read things into it, as it were. But Nass and Reeves then break their studies down. They say, there's a very famous story of Steve Jobs and, was, and, and his technical guy, wasn't it, who, he, wasn't it, comes in with the first Apple, and he said, look at this, I've got it working, switches on, and there's a little blinking cursor in DOS. And Steve goes, where's the hello? It's, and, 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 and the technical guy goes, what do you mean, hello, it's a computer? And Steve said, no, 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 it has to say hello. 
Who was right? Who was right? <laughs> that simple understanding of the psychology of interfaces made Apple one of the most important companies in the history of technology. That simple insight. Now, Nassim Reeves said, well, actually, computers have to be polite. You can't get away with any pauses. You know, sometimes when you've got that, you know when you get video, it's got reading a slight lip sync out, you just can't watch yeah, the movie. Yeah. He said, you, it has to seem human to, be, to, to continue. Now, that's what's great about ChatGPT. It keeps you going in dialogue, and it gives you amazing stuff back. It's very simple in a way. And when, of course, when, audio, uh, when you speak to it, which you can now, it's even more amazing, but it's a stripped-down thing. He thought that first impressions mattered as well, you know. And it was when you hit technology for the first time, it should be nice to you. Yeah. The great thing about ChatGPT, I think it's the source of its success, is unlike most humans, it's relentlessly nice. <laughs> Almost too nice, you know? Uh, but it's always really helpful. Yeah. That's why it hallucinates. Sometimes it's hallucinating because it just wants to give you something, you know? Yes. And then, but it overreaches. It's like the over-helpful intern. Exactly, yes. yeah. 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 Des it's so desperate to please. We give a workshop on this, actually, and when you're prompting, it's a really weird thing about large language models. If you abuse it, and you, and, or, you, or you're really nice to it and say, listen, this is really important to me, it really affects my career, then you write the prompt, it gives you a better answer. Isn't that weird? If you emotionally prompt, it gives you a better reply. Or if you say, come on, you know, the, like give it a bit of aggression, yeah, listen, if you're not, get it right, mate, or else. Yeah. It also gives you a better answer. It's the weirdest thing when you do it. Honestly, try it. It's the, it freaked me out when I first did this. Yeah. So, I, I think that with Amazon actually. I came down one morning um, and in a bad mood said, Amazon, Radio 4. <laughs> yeah. And um, it came back to me very sarcastically, your wish is my command master. And I was completely <laughs> freaked out uh, until my wife uh, owned up that she'd actually programmed it to do it like that. She's always saying I should be a bit more courteous to, to Amazon. But on a more serious note, uh, what about the Turing? Is the Turing test kind of obsolete now? Because what, what you're saying is there's a whole science around how we take interfaces as being human. So this kind of idea that you can have a test that will tell whether or not it's sentient. Yeah, well, we had Turing. We didn't mention him much, actually. Tur yeah. Turing, Turing is really important in terms of the history of AI, with his paper and, the, and computational theory and so on. But is often sort of the Turing test yeah. turned out not to be as useful as we thought. So there started to be various species of the Turing test because it was quite ill-defined as just being some judgment about whether it was going to be human or not. And of course, you could argue that Eliza, for that secretary in the room in the early 60s, had passed the Turing test. She yeah. believed it was a person. But of course, you now have much more sophisticated tests that quiz it and interrogate it to see if it's human. But I think this is under the mistaken belief that there is one thing that is human or is intelligent, as if there's one line of a defined intelligence in human beings, and when you transgress that, take language speaking, for example. How many people in this room can speak more than five languages? None. Okay, ChatGPT can speak 140 languages. So, it's, so in terms of language or translation, it's exceeded humans by a million miles. It's passed that dimension in the Turing test. But if you asked it really, like even in mathematics, when it first launched, it couldn't even add two plus two. Mm. Now, because it's got the wool from Mathematica attached to it, it can do advanced calculus. Mm. So within, it's not even a year old. 
ChatGPT was launched during OEB last year. Uh, the November the 30th, it will be only one year old. It's still a baby, and it can do calculus and speak 100 and odd languages. That's pretty freaky. Yeah. So I think it's what it's doing is it's, it's like a firework. It's going off and solving all these things, transgressing human abilities. I mean, it has more knowledge. But it's got more breadth of knowledge than any human being. It's, it's like a degree in every subject. Yeah. And this is why I think it can be a teacher in any subject, because it speaks any language, knowledgeable in any subject. It's available 24 hours a day. What's wrong with this? You know, this is going in the right direction if we want an educational piece of technology that can teach anybody in any language at any time in any place. And also we can build good pedagogy into the thing as well. That's what people like, why people like Pask and Socrates are so important. We can take the pedagogical things they discovered and the whole of learning theory that we've exposed in the podcast and build, that's what myself and Callum have been doing, we've been building that into the prompting so you right. don't have to worry about it. It will produce good stuff because the theory's all right, good, the good pedagogy's in there. Okay. If that made sense. I hate to hurry you, but we've got to get on to okay. Seymour Papert. Yeah, well, pa Papert worked at MIT, and he wrote a book on perceptrons, going way back to those guys. He got it completely wrong, by the way. The XOR logical function was actually solved. He thought it was insolvable. That's a technical issue. But this, uh, if we go into the next slide, John, what I really love, we're on the interface thing for a minute. What I loved about Papert was his his constructionism and his view of the way that people learned in his very famous book, Mindstorms, which is fantastic. So in Mindstorms and other work, he said the perfect piece of technology. So if you come to OEB and you go, what's the perfect piece of technology, John? What sort of interface should it have? He defined it as low ceiling, sorry, low floor, high ceiling. What did that mean? It meant low floor was like Google. You just type something in. Or like ChatGPT, you just say, let's ask it anything, boom, 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 or speak. That's low ceiling. You don't have to worry about the interface. It's what we do as human beings. High ceiling meant, holy shit, it gives you something amazing back. Yeah. Or it gives you correction. Like Duolingo now will give you corrections on whether you did a plural in English that was wrong, like sheep, and you said sheeps. Uh, you can actually do all sorts of things. You can actually speak and immerse yourself in a language which you couldn't do even a few months ago. That's what he meant by high ceiling. So low floor, high ceiling. The third dimension is even more interesting because I don't think he, he did actually think there was such a thing that would happen. He was very prescient here. He thought a knowledge machine would be built at one time that would, be, would have a massively high ceiling, a low floor, and wide walls. By wide walls, he meant it would know everything. Oh. What happened on November the 30th last year? We had something that was low floor, massively high ceiling, and massively wide walls, and it blew people's minds. And over that period, not even a year old, it's got bigger and better, and uh, it's almost an unstoppable piece of technology. It's what we've been dreaming of at OEB for 20-odd years. And we have it in our lap, and we had a keynote this morning saying we should go back to using pencils. <laughs> <laughs> Hold that thought. Let's get on to engagement and personalization. And uh, <laughs> I had to get that one in. Maybe you can deal with some of that. With so I'm still angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of sensed a uh, rant mode. <laughs> engaged. Couldn't last, John. Couldn't so, last. Yeah, yeah. So engagement and personalization. Um, 
is the last theme we're going to cover here, I think. Oh, no, almost. Richard Ryan and Edward LDC. Uh, Ryan was named by Science Watch as one of the leading theorists of human motivation, ranking among the top 1% of researchers in the field, professorships at the Australian Catholic University and University of Rochester. He's among the most cited researchers in psychology and social sciences today. Uh, the other guy, Edward LDC, uh, was born 1942. He's a professor of psychology and Gowan Professor in Social Sciences at the University of Rochester and Director of its Human Motivation Program. Um, together, they developed self-determination theory. Donald, tell us about it. Well, I like self-determination theory, John, and I like it because these guys did something quite interesting. They came up with a theory and then, in particular, they looked at uh, people who played computer games. And the assumption was also always that kids like Callum, who played a lot of computer games, they were always having fun. You know, it was always about fun. Hence all that bullshit gamification you get in e-learning. You know, actually, when you look at real gamers, they're not having fun. It's a deadly serious business, <laughs> and watch them when they're doing it. So these guys empirically studied what really made people learn. People learn super fast in computer games. They get skilled up through the levels. How did? But what what made it? Why were people so? compelled to play these games, and it influences learning theory, there were three things. The first thing, they had personal agency. Agency in games, terribly important. And that's what you get with ChatGPT. You're in the driving seat, okay? It's not like being PowerPointed at. You're in the driving seat. You can ask it anything. The second thing was really interesting. Actually, people really enjoyed just being more competent. So when you're in a game, uh, let's say it's a shoot them up, we'll do something simple. I'm shooting the audience, I'm spraying you. You kill me, I'm dead. I go back to the beginning, I respawn. When I come back, I'm going to keep an eye on you, mate, because you're going to kill me. So I learn really quickly, because I don't want to be killed again. This whole notion of increasing competence, people got a huge satisfaction, they found out empirically, by being better, which is what learning is which is why we have a lot to learn about levels and risk-reward strategies in games in the design of learning materials. And then the third one was, you might think that gamers are sort of pretty antisocial, sort of in the back bedroom type people. These people play with teams. When Callum plays, he's playing with people all over the world against other people all over the world. You have Twitch, you have all these this social, social context amongst games players. So he thought they were the three big dimensions. And I think that informs how we might think about ChatGPT because it gives you that sort of stuff, interestingly. We now get on to our, our last little section here, which is delivery of learning. Uh, and a couple of really well-known people in learning now. So in a way, we've kind of brought it all back completely to learning. Um, I think everybody knows who Benjamin Samuel Bloom is. In, in the world. Uh, hands up anybody who doesn't know, uh, who never heard the name Benjamin Bloom. Yeah, just keep couple. up. A okay. couple. <laughs> okay. You want to read up a bit on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, Bloom's taxonomy, very, very, very big in, in learning uh, and his theory of mastery learning. Um, Richard E. Mayer, um, if we go on to him, uh, Donald Cover in, in more detail in a second. He's an American educational psychologist, distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who has made significant contributions to theories of cognition 
and learning, most famous for multimedia learning theory. And I think I heard you say, Donald, that no learning designer should get near a piece of online learning if they haven't read Maya. So if we go back to the previous one, yeah. Bloom, you're not going to talk about his um, uh, taxonomy, you're going to talk about his Sigma paper, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the, the taxonomy. I mean, you know, people latch onto that pyramid. Remember, he had the three of tripartite distinction in learning, which was the cognitive, the psychomotor, psychomotor, and the affective or emotional. And all people in higher education and education pick up on is the one one third of it, the cognitive thing, because that's what they do, they teach theory, and then they ignore the other two. It's a complete distortion of what he wrote. And also, he never came up with a pyramid, by the way, never in any of his writings, and his student completely altered it, because it's a waste of time, but it appears everywhere. Nevertheless, Peter Norvig, who was the head of AI at Google, said there's only one paper you need to read if you want to look at technology and learning, and it's this paper, the Two Sigma paper from Bloom. So he did an experiment, randomized groups. He took one group that just sat in a lecture and were told to learn as best they could. Another group who sat in a lecture but with some reinforced learning activity afterwards to get the stuff embedded. And then a third group was one-on-one -on -one like ChatGPT. And look at the difference. There was a ninth, so the benchmark in terms of the distribution curve there is the lecture. You get an increase, a massive increase of 98% in learning when it's one-to-one, -one, which is why middle-class parents hire tutors for their kids. So all those liberals who say, oh yeah, it's all about social learning in the schools, and then when they go home, they hire a tutor for their kid to get one over the other kids in the classroom. We've been amused by that one. Even teachers do that. Teachers hire tutors for their kids. <laughs> so I think Bloom sort of exposed this. And this is why rich people, before school, they hired really smart people to teach their kids one-on-one. -on -one. I think social learning is massively exaggerated because in a group, have you ever been in those horrible training things around tables where you have to chat for 10 minutes on every subject with people around the table, feed it back? I just walk out the room now because I don't learn a damn thing. And because there's loads of social loafing, you know, five of the people are talking about something else and they're not really interested. If you do it with kids and you've got seven of them around the table, at least four or five are not paying any attention and the three kids who are really interested do all the work. But Bloom sort of exposed this, and I think this is an interesting lesson for us, because why are the 100 million people using ChatGPT to learn in the flow of work or in the flow of life? Because it's, it's, it's a personal one -on -one. tutor. Because it's one-on-one per personal it, tutoring. Exactly, it's a yeah, personal yeah. tutor. So I think there's a vindication of Bloom here, that he was onto something and he was right, and it supports empirically what has actually happened. So the second guy, Richard Mayer, that we're talking about delivery of this stuff now, you ha are we going to use this AI chatbot stuff? I think damn right we should, uh, because of all the evidence I've just given. But lastly, Mayer, Mayer said something really interesting, which is, he used this at Occam's Razor. If there's one principle he got across, was the minimum number of entities to reach your given goal. So if you're doing an e-learning program on any topic, don't go into storytelling and, you know, that's a hokey, oh, what does Peter think about this, blah, 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 make cartoons and speech bubbles actually cut to the quick a wee bit more, because less is more. So he really understands the psychology of learning, and, and he has 500 studies on the delivery of online learning, and almost all of them say less should be more, you know? And 
he's just an absolute genius. He's been working for years and years and years on this. And I think if there's one person you should pay attention to, and he also has this, you know, media mix is not mind rich. Everybody's rushing to video or high end or 3D environments. And so he's saying, no, 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 no. Media mix, media rich is not mind rich. Sometimes a very simple text chat might do. How prophetic was he? You know, sometimes we just want it quick. And that's why people love this stuff in the flow of work. I think the way in which we, and certainly in the workplace, can use this stuff is more as performance support. You can build courses with, with it if you want. I think that would be a damn shame if you use AI to build courses. That's like Henry Ford saying, let's have faster horses, you know? Let's make it transformative by using all the pedagogic stuff we've been discussing today to make it an exciting medium, because that's why people are using it. They want the dialogue. Uh, but let's make it meaningful, structured dialogue in a learning context so that people really do learn. And lastly, he thought that personalization and conversational, he, he always thought that media should be conversational. You should use I, we, me, yeah. as opposed to an academic lecturer who's very serious and would learn, talks in a very serious tone. He said, this is a big mistake, actually. We're not tuned to that. We want people to be real. We want them to be like real people in dialogue. And he did the studies that showed this was true. If you adopt a conversational, friendly tone in your dialogue, uh, uh, even a video, it increases learning. So lots to learn from uh, uh, Richard and uh, Nassan Reeves and, the, and these other people here then. I think we've got a little bit of time for questions. We're sort of <laughs> really pushing the envelope here. And we've got the, the microphone there as well. Anybody got any questions? Raise your hand, please. And there we go. It would, uh, would be interesting if you could say something about copyright and chat GTP. All right. OK. Uh, well, last week, before Sam Altman went out and came back in again, he made an amazing announcement. Remember this guy behind chat GPT? He said, if you have a legal case against you and you lose it, we will pay your legal bills and your fines. That's all you have to know because there will be no copyright cases against them because the way the mathematics works is everything is freshly minted. This means that nothing is being copied. Copyright, the law is based on the word copy. Nothing is being copied. It's not like sampling in a, uh, in a rap record or whatever. Uh, now, there are other things, you know, there's still uh, books are protected and so on. There are all sorts of laws that already exist there. But I think the whole issue has got a wee bit out of hand here. <laughs> uh, uh, I would hope that the future benefits in education and health mean we don't get wrapped up in the obscure and stupid copyright battles that are almost like vague and non-existent. My fear, for example, it's an interesting question because the EU are already being lobbied like crazy by German publishers, primarily, who are trying to hammer the nail into the coffin of AI, because they know the writing's on the wall for them. Right. Uh, Disney have weighed in, haven't they? Yeah. Which is an interesting one, because Disney has the power to change the law on copyright. Um, they proved this with Mickey Mouse, where they kind of got the, the, the term yeah. extended so that um, he could continue to be in copyright, little Mickey, for a bit longer. Um, have a look at the Disney share price. But, but that's about, that's about um, protecting the brand, really. I mean, it, it, it's a different thing. There will be a lot of workings out to do with this, aren't they? But, but yeah, Altman's yeah. intervention there is a really interesting forward-thinking forward one. 
Any, any others? Have we got time for another one, maybe? John DeMang from the Open University. A fantastic discussion. Really loved it. I'm, so I'm trying to change the OU to do this. Not, not easy. And, and I think about the landscape. We have tech companies with a lot of investment. Average university, if you ask them, they have nothing. They have you know, not much in the way of resources. So I'm just thinking, how, how would it work pragmatically to move from a generic tool, like GPT-4, to something that's tuned in the way that your dream team would want it to be for, for education? Yeah. I don't buy this idea that universities don't have any money. <laughs> they get big checks at the beginning of the year. Depends on the university. You know, there's nobody at this conference from further education or skills colleges because the higher education have robbed that world, the vocational world. I don't buy that really. But you, you have a serious point there. Now, it's interesting that in artificial intelligence in general has gone out of the university sector. The, the, the real research takes place inside. All the best people are actually inside these companies now. And the, because you need vast resources to train them. And that's good, because it would never have happened in a university. It just would never have happened. So that's now happening. But it's like everything else. There are now open source models from Facebook, for example. You can download Llama. You can do that. And loads of stuff is happening within universities on that front. That's great. Because William Nordhaus, who has a Nobel Prize on this, looked at the issue. When a, when a big piece of revolutionary technology like the internet comes along, about 2% of it goes to these big tech companies. 98% of it goes back into universities, small startups, companies, and people in terms of increased productivity. So I think that's an interest, I think that's what's happening here. I use ChatGPT, I pay hardly anything for it, but it blows my mind. Why wouldn't educators want something that's next to free? We have Google, Google Scholar. I mean, I'm going into a debate now where the other side are going to say, actually, let's, uh, let's ban Google and Google Scholar because it's AI. Are you mad? <laughs> it, I thought it was online educable we were at. We're debating whether AI should be used in education or not. Give me a break. You should be at the offline educa conference. Yeah. I think we need to, to let Donald go off. Yeah, I've got to go. I've get involved got 10 in the minutes. big debate. <laughs> it's obviously itching for a, for a scratch. So, <laughs> so just, to, just to say from the point of view of the podcast, thank you everybody in the hall for coming along today. We really enjoy these live podcast events. Um, makes us very nervous and we like that. <laughs> and everybody in podcast land as well for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and get updates. Please like, share, sorry, please like, share, review and all that stuff. Uh, and if you don't already follow our sister podcast, The Learning Hack, please give it a listen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. coming along. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark, and we thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you'd like text summaries and transcripts for these podcasts, as well as ads-free listening, early access to episodes and more, why not join the Learning Hack Pack? For less than the price of a coffee, you can get all these benefits and help to sustain us into the future. Go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack for a seven day free trial. That's patreon.com forward slash learning hack.